I have just a few minutes to um, try to bring us back a few months. I need to try to establish some context in the letter of First Peter. Um, so most of this is going to be a quick review, and I hope that uh, if we get back on track a little bit, that it, you know the next month and everything we keep going, um, that uh, there won't have to be as much rewind in, in context there. But since it's been a little while because we get to have a healthy senior pastor now. So, <laughs> so uh, because of that good thing, then um, we might be a little rusty on some of the context of this. So hopefully I can bring us up to speed uh, without sounding too repetitively redundant again. And I learned that when I, it was back in 2004 probably, I heard that from Pastor Bill. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. All right. I pay attention once in a while. Uh Peter is uh, writing a letter from a standpoint of having lived a life of ups and downs. Uh, being an apostle, he spent a, a few years walking and observing uh, the actions with Jesus Christ as he was ministering, doing the will of his father, as Jesus says. And so Peter was active. He was engaged. And why we like the study of Peter is because He's kind of this enigma. He's, he's inspiring on one front because he was the first to volunteer. He jumped in with both feet. He wanted to do it all. And he also fell flat on his face. And so there's, there's, Peter can relate to all of us in different ways. And so we like to pick on poor Peter, but uh, I think that uh, Peter's presence in the gospel record of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is so needed for the outworking of uh, the kingdom of God, because it gives us um, something that we might be able to attain to. You know, like I can sink in the ocean waves, no problem. I have no problem doing that. I have no problem making promises that I can't fulfill. I can do that. Peter's my guy. I can relate to him. It's all the other shining examples that I, I sometimes find unattainable. But so that's what we like about Peter. Peter is writing this letter to uh, the Christians that are scattered abroad, he tells us in the opening of the letter. They're, they're spread out. They've moved out. It gives us sort of the sense of being chased out, like with cracking of a whip and everything. That isn't necessarily all that's going on. It's just the gospel spreading out. The people are spreading out. It's starting to, to uh, infect the surrounding areas. And so Peter is saying, okay, you guys are getting a little spread out. I want to address you all in this broader term so that you can um, know what's coming. You may recall that Peter and Paul, uh, mostly recorded for us in the book of Acts, had been stirring up the hornet's nest. We were talking about how, you know, because of their actions, it's almost like when you and I have tried knocking down a, a hornet's nest or something, you, you know, you, you knock and run. That's what I do. I always have some that are right outside my back door underneath my deck, and I don't let my kids watch me because I want them to think their dad's brave. If you saw how I do this... You know, every kid would be like, my dad's a failure, I can't, and I have to look for another positive male role model in their life. You know, you pretty much, you knock, and then you run away like this. And then if someone's being really cute, they're on the other side of the door locking it on you and all that kind of stuff. So that's always fun. So Peter is saying, we've knocked over a few hornet's nests. They've come calling. They've captured us. They've, they've um, interrogated us. They've imprisoned us and everything. So we just want you to know that the bees that started swarming around the nest that we've knocked down are spreading out and they are finding where you live. They will be arriving in your backyard in the near future. So 
Peter is not shy to sound an alarm. And if you think about what is the, what is the method that you and I start to um, really pay attention to the urgency of life? What is the messenger that gets through to us the most? Some of us would say that um, perhaps being around other people that are, have uh, maybe a good thing going on in their life or something, and they're kind of inspiring to us, and we say, oh, that, that person's got it all together. Then we stop and think, hmm, maybe I should get it more together too. And then sometimes we start making some adjustments and we reprioritize our life because of this good example. You know, we're always thinking about, uh, or the most common example so often is, you know, what we're doing with our health and everything. And so, you know, there's, there's that idea out there, you know, she comes walking by and you're like, she is so skinny. I wonder what pills she's taking and everything. I want to do that too. And, and so it motivates you to start thinking about maybe I should be taking the same pills and everything. And so don't, don't do any of that. So, um, but we're motivated by other, what we would consider to be good examples around us. But sometimes, I would love to say that this is me and that this is all of us the most, but sometimes we're motivated by quiet reflection. Sometimes we have um, truth standing before us, like the Word of God or something that we know we should be doing, but in particular the Word of God, and we look into it like a mirror and we're taking that time to saturate our souls with the truth of God's Word and, and we're saying, you know, it's been a while since I've been challenged about this aspect or about this truth and I should really start applying that. I would love to say that's how most of us are. But I'm not going to take a survey or a show of hands, but I don't think that's where most of us live. It would be great if we are, and that's where we should be moving towards. But I think so often most of us determine our change of course or we reprioritize our life based on some alarm that's going off. You know, we're not eating carrots and cucumbers until the doctor calls and says, I've got bad news. Uh, we're not necessarily taking those times, those quiet times with our kids to instill principles and everything until we're looking at a pregnancy test together. We're not doing those kinds of things ahead of time because the alarm hasn't gone off yet. But when the alarm does, we're going to get some things in order here. Most of us operate that way. Most of us react to scary news or bad news, and then we are like, aye, aye, captain, yes, sir, whatever you want from me. The problem with that kind of approach is once the bad news weans off or fades away, who do we become again? We go back to those same places. So if we're alarm-based, you know, we're going to make changes. But unfortunately, it may be a little too late or at least won't be as effective as it could have been before. So... Uh, Peter is not shy to uh, sound the alarm. In chapter 4, a little bit later on in the letter, he sounds like one of those kind of crazy looking people with the sandwich board signs when he says this. In, in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Not dramatic at all. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter knows where we live. He knows that even though he's writing to a church who is very well aware of persecution, basically right down the street, even though he's writing to a congregation of people or scattered people that know the struggles of Peter and of Paul, that they still have this insane kind of like human ability to say, but that's down there. It hasn't hit home yet. So yeah, I'm concerned, I'm praying about it, I'm watching the updates on the news and stuff, I'm checking my Twitter feed to see what's going on, but... It hasn't hit home yet, so we got time. So I'm still going to stress out about other things in my life, the luxuries of life that will eventually not matter once everything flips around, once the alarm goes off and I've got to reprioritize. 
Peter knows that's who his audience is. Peter knows because he went through the same thing. Peter was the first one to say, I'd never deny you, Lord. You can count on me every time. And then once he was needed, he fell flat on his face. He knows better than anybody the capacity of the human heart to cover up the urgency of the matter and not uh, have to check under that rock and not have to bother with it. So Peter is writing, I think, I'm, I'm inferring a little bit here, but I think Peter is writing with a, with a huge amount of compassion. It says, look, I'm just warning you, this is who you're going to be tempted to be. You are going to be tempted when the bees arrive to start panicking and acting like you used to before you met Christ, before you had a hope that was built within you, before you had new life that was given to you. Trust me, when the drama hits, you're going to go back to old you. I'm asking you and I'm calling you, I'm compelling you not to be old you. Instead, in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But even in chapter 2, he, he says in verse 2, he says, I want you to act like newborn babes. So he's saying, look, you don't have to do the thing that you've always done because new life has been given to you based on what? Based on the power of the resurrection. And so Peter is saying that, that the goal of, of our lives and what we should be focusing on is found in, uh, in verse 7. I don't think we ever got over there. So let me just read this real quick with you. He says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is moving us in a direction of saying, if you want to just do more than hunker down when the tribulation comes or when the, when the difficulty of the persecution comes, if you want to do more than just saying, well, we weathered that one, okay, and then come out of your, your basement or your bunker, he says you're going to have to start reprioritizing your life. And his first call Basically, like the doctor's call to us that gets our attention is he says, your focus in life has to be for the fame of somebody else. You have to do all that you can to promote the glory, the honor, and the praise of God so that when, it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that when Christ is revealed to be who he is, and we talk about the real God, the biblical Jesus, as opposed to the, the earthly conception of Jesus. We talk about that all the time here at Faith to get us to understand that God is already famous. God is already well known. He is talked about in almost every circle. His name is brought up, every hammer swing that misses and hits the thumb. He is blamed for everything that wasn't ever solved in this earth. He's blamed for the disasters that come. So God is famous, but I think what Peter is focusing on here is that we would live for the fame of God that would be focused on who the Bible says he is. So that when Christ is revealed and the whole world is looking, every tongue is ready to confess and every knee is ready to bow, they would say, that's what that crazy church was talking about all these years. That's what those people were giving their lives to. That's why they were building those shelters. That's why they were building those orphanages. That's why they were jumping on planes and floating on boats to go all around the world and give the Bible to people whose language doesn't even have handwritten language yet or anything. That's why they were doing all those things because they've been saying to us over and over again that one day the real Jesus will be made known and you'll all acknowledge it. And so Peter's saying that your actions now would match what that revelation is going to be down the road. 
So when he's revealed, people would say, now I know why that guy at work has been on my case so much. Now I know that woman kept Facebooking me saying, I'm praying for you. Because she knew who Jesus really was and I was ignoring him. So Peter is saying that our goal would be the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, if you're already dialed into that, if you're thinking, okay, I'm signing up for that, that sounds like something I should do. And the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, so you're on board and you're saying, aye, aye, captain. Then he says, what the believer needs to do is to think exact opposite of everybody else around you. That our thinking changes. The Bible tells us that as, as the heart spews out these things, that who we really are on the outside is revealed. And so Jesus even said that out of the heart come all the things that make us unclean. It isn't just because I said a bad thing one time. It's what I thought on the inside. And so as our thinking changes as a result of God arresting our heart and getting in there and plowing up that hard ground, as our thinking changes, then it starts to um, display itself in different actions. So you might recall some of this back from back in February, but we said that the world is on a mindset of relaxation, that everyone's looking for that, that break away, that everyone wants to have that vacation, or we can't wait to cross the finish line into retirement and all those things. And there's a whole lot of that that we can understand. And I'm not saying that, that there isn't uh, a place for all of that. But, but Peter is saying that our minds have to be focused on not what do I need always to recharge my batteries, or what do I think is the good life, and that I'm going to define that based on where I can put my feet up. But instead, the, the engaged mind of the believer says, what does God have for me to do in his kingdom so that I can be about my father's business like Jesus said? And that that would be what motivates me to get out of bed every single morning. So Peter's saying, if you're going to be ready for this that's coming, then that's where you have to start is in the change in your thought process. To think soberly instead of what we see going on around us, which is this kind of oblivious um, recklessness. It's kind of like, I'm just going to go where the wind takes me and I'm going to just chase whatever opportunity comes up and everything. Instead, it's more uh, an action of self-control. And we understand too that the scripture says this is our opportunity to display hope, which is that confident expectation that every promise that God has uh, given us to this point has been fulfilled. Why would we doubt that uh, he's going to come through. So even as, even as the, uh, the big, uh, just to be dramatic, even as the big tidal wave is coming this way and it's going to swallow up the whole eastern seaboard, we'd look at that and say, there's my gateway. There's my door to the other side. What is meeting me right now, which everyone would look on and their knees would knock in fear, I'm looking at that as my release to finally experience the, the, the rest and the peace and the freedom that Jesus has been promising his church for 2,000 years. That's because we are thinking differently and we're going to act accordingly. When we're thinking like that, we're not hightailing and running. We're not, we're not getting away from all that danger necessarily because we are preparing for that to arrive. And remember who's writing this. You know, Peter tucked his tail between his legs and took off three different times. And so he's getting us to, to think differently and saying, if you think differently, your behavior will soon follow. So let's get into just a, a little bit more of this uh, letter as we jump into uh, chapter 2, where the scripture says that we have to start shedding some things off before we can receive necessarily everything that the Lord has for us. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, based on everything that we've just discussed, putting aside all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So that's quite a list. It's quite a dark and ugly list, actually, when we look at it. But it's good for us. It's a good inventory list for us to take because Peter is not talking to all the wayward people that are down at the bar that can't, you know, get themselves sober and can't find, you know, or the, the one who's beating their kids and everything and has nothing to do with God. Peter is writing to people like you and I that say, boy, I really love being at my church. I really love the music that we just sang. And you know, when I see that person on the side of the road, I just, I'm really compelled to want to help them. And I do from time to time and stuff. And I'm really trying to be a better spouse and trying to be a better parent and everything. So Peter's writing to those same types of people. And yet he's still calling them out saying, do an inventory on a list of flat out ugliness in your heart to make sure that you're moving it out. Because the more we move it out, we create space for God to move his truth in. That list, if we see what it's really all about, we can see, okay, this is, there's a little bit of me in all of this, and there's a little bit of us in this. That first word, malice, is that depravity or the really dark side of, I, I always picture, um, when I think of things like this, it's, it's somewhat comical, I guess, but it really, I think the writer, Dr. Seuss, did such a good job coming up with the Grinch, because he, he just has all the evilness um, that, that we would imagine, and uh, I remember Jim Carrey's version of that or something, and he was like, my downright uh, nasty, not niceness, or something like that, he says in there. And that's what I think of when I think of malice. It's like if you could just see what's below the surface, you don't, you don't really want to look any further. What do we do when we have a heart of malice, when we have that depravity going on? We deceive, we push away from the truth. I have an image of me that I want you to see, I have an image of, of my heart and of my, of my mind and I, I color it with the things that I say. I want you to see this version of me, but the real me over here, I'm deflecting you away from that. Which is, of course, being a hypocrite. He says, get rid of all hypocrisy because hypocrisy isn't as the church has been blamed for centuries now. Well, I'd, I'd go to church or I'd, I've given up on religion because of all the hypocrites there. The, the point is, is that, yeah, there's some of that we certainly have to own. But hypocrisy isn't just because sinners showed up to church. Hopefully you didn't walk through those doors this morning saying, I'm here today because I finally had a good, clean week. So now I deserve to be here. God's going to smile at me because I lived well this week, so now I can come. Next week, I'm not so sure, so maybe I won't be back. That, you know, hypocrisy isn't that we're flawless or that we come to recharge or we come to hear the truth or we come to kind of wash ourselves in the grace that has been offered to us. Hypocrisy is when we pretend we don't need it. Hypocrisy is, is also related very closely to another word on the list, which is slander. When I elevate myself by pushing you down, if I'm going to speak evil about you or I'm going to brag about all my strengths and I don't want you to have a hint of any of my weaknesses. Why? Because that reflects poorly on me. That's hypocrisy. When the church continues to walk in grace and own its faults and, 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 and not to, to wallow in it and wear it like a, like a billboard, but to readily acknowledge that I am, I, I am and was messed up enough to need a savior, then that's when this label of hypocrisy can start going away. And of course, we have to be careful of envy, which is lusting after what isn't ours. This really, this little list here is a perfect recipe for a hopeless, 
futile existence. Not that we're out looking for that, but if you ever were, mix all these ingredients together and bake it up hot because this is what the product of this list is, is emptiness and despair and anger and, and isolation and all of those things. So Peter is saying, yes, you churchgoer, yes, you Bible reader, yes, you prayer to God, make sure you're evaluating that list and move those things out of your heart by allowing, he says in verse 2, the pure or sincere milk of the word of God. So I think often how God works is that we offer ourselves like we just sang, you know, here's my heart, Lord. We offer ourselves to him. We say, Lord, speak what is true in my life. And he says, okay, but as I move in, you're moving stuff out. And we sign the contract and we say, okay, I'm not keeping my stuff here. All these rooms are for you. And as he's moving in, he's helping us push out. So often we think, I've got to clean out every single room before he's even going to be involved in my life. I've got to be perfect, I've got to show up perfect to him, perfectly clean, and then he fills it up. But I think he does a process of purging out as he infuses. But our willingness, Lord, here's my heart, speak what is true, moves those things out. And so Peter is saying, just like newborn babies in the position that you have been born in or reborn in, Open yourselves up to the Lord to allow him to push those things out and desire the pure milk of the word. Let me just ask a a real brief reflection question because we're over time. We're going to wrap this up. When's the last time in your life you would say, I had a picture of baby, picture what they do when they're hungry, picture how everybody around them knows that it's time to feed that baby. So I think Peter's words here are chosen carefully. But like newborn babies desiring, you know, desire might be a pretty weak, weak word for those of us that have raised babies, right? If that was desire, I want nothing to do with it, you know? Demanding or just, you know, freaking out and everything. When's the last time you desired purity? When's the last time you desired something that was so foreign to the old you because it comes directly from the mouth or the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? If your answer to that question is, "Eh, I don't really know, I get glimpses of that every once in a while, then let me suggest to you that you you have developed a hunger and a diet for the things that will fail you and they let you down over and over and over again. You know, for those of you that exercise and work out and everything, you know how unsatisfying a big soda can be after you've just been sweating everything off and everything. And even if you love soda when you're not doing any of that, but when you're dying of thirst, there's nothing more beautiful than a big, giant, icy, crystal clear glass of water. I hate water. I mean, I can't, I can't stomach the fact that I'm made up of so much water because it's so bland and boring until I'm dying of thirst. And it's amazing. If you ever do it, you're drinking the glass, just look at it and be like, how is this so clear? How is this so perfect for me? God knew what he was doing, and instead I want to fill myself with Dr. Pepper. But what happens when I do that? I want more of the same thing. I've bought the lie that that's going to continue to satisfy me, even though as soon as I'm done, it makes me want more. I have the glass of water, and all of a sudden, I hold out for a while. It sustains me. It keeps me up. It makes me healthier, and I only realize the benefits later on. And so if it's been that long that you've really desired something that pure, it's because you've just been filling yourself with the other stuff. 
Give yourself a break. Unplug from that. Walk away from that and just say, okay, Lord, I'm stepping out in faith because I feel like I need this other thing I've depended on, but I'm going to step out in faith and I'm creating this giant gap in my life and in my heart. I want you to fill it for me. Move in and do that. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true or give me what is pure. I hope that you do that. Peter is leading up to a point that we will hopefully get to in a month or so. Um, and, and, but you can sneak ahead. You can read verses 4 through 10 and cheat a little bit if you're really hungering the word of God. So I'll leave that up to you. Would you stand, please? We'll close in prayer. I'm going to ask uh, the men to stick behind here for another 10 minutes. Lord, we thank you, God, for all that you are about. We thank you, God, that you give us such pure things that... Um, but while you give it to us, you have such grace around it because we don't acknowledge the good thing you're trying to give us. We're disappointed by it often in the receiving of it. But Lord, once we take it in and once we feed on it, we realize that's what our souls have always needed. So God, you are so patient with us. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to trust your purity for your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Guys, please stick around.